Hi, and welcome to the Days Gone podcast. I'm Claire Weaver, a screenwriter, author, and Days Gone fan, and this podcast is a place to discuss the game in all its glory, share my opinions, both popular and unpopular, and listen to me fangirl over one of the best games ever made. There will be spoilers ahead, so continue at your own risk. Welcome to The Freak Show. Before we get started, I want to let you know you can get your Days Gone inspired merchandise at the new URL of beartraptavern.threadless.com. There's tees, tanks, sweaters, pins, stickers, notebooks, phone cases, art prints, and more, and it all ships internationally so you can rep your love of the game all around the world. Today, I am very excited to welcome to the show an incredible guest who I've wanted to talk to since my very first playthrough of the game. He is none other than the writer and creative director of Days Gone, Mr. John Garvin. Hi, John. How are you doing today? Hey, Claire. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, yeah. I have a lot of questions for you about Days Gone, so I, I say we just get right into it. Uh, starting sure. at the beginning, what was your original vision for the game and how did it change through the development process? That's an awesome question. Before we jump into that, I, I just want to say, dude, this is an awesome podcast. Um, <laughs> I remember you sending me a link to it back when you had Jason Spisak on and I just forgot about it and I just never had time because I was super busy. Um, mm -hmm. And then and then I saw on Sam Whitworth's feed that he came on recently. So I'm like, oh, shoot, that's right. There's this podcast that's about the game. <laughs> And so I listened to quite a few episodes, and I got to say, you know the game as well as I do. Oh, well, thank you for saying so. Um, you know, this podcast has come out of my passion for the game, my love of the game. Uh, I just, I, I don't know what else to say. I know I've, uh, I've learned a lot through doing the podcast as I've gone, um, talking to a lot of people, talking to a lot of people from Bend, a lot of the creators behind it. And uh, it's just, it's a real honor to get to talk to you today. Yeah, so the the original vision for the game is is the mechanic of the horde. That's really where we started because the um, you know we didn't, it, I think World World War Z had just come out, you know Brad Pitt's movie, and they had done some amazing visual effects with zombies uh, in that game. And yes, I do call them zombies now, even though they are freakers. We're all clear about that. Um, mm -hmm. But the uh, but that's where it started. It started like okay. You know, for game development, you always want to find a new idea and a new gameplay idea. And this is kind of one I worked with Jeff Ross on, and it was just very early on. It was going to be a, you know, we had a demo working on the Vita using our engine from Uncharted Golden Abyss. And, you know, we had an engineer who was kind of a, a prodigy genius who was able to get, you know, hundreds of freakers running around chasing the player. And, you know, and that sort of started the idea of like, hey, this is going to be a game where you're going to face insurmountable odds and all you can do is run and set up traps and upgrade to better weapons and so on. And then for me, it's, it started as a, you know, as an, as an idea of like, what is a number one, what is a game I want to play? And number two, what haven't I seen before? So, you know, bikers and biker culture, they've been done, right? There's been like an expansion pack on, on Grand Theft Auto and a, and a couple of others. Um, a couple of really fun games from from the 90s, actually. And but I had never seen it done kind of seriously. And so I was a huge fan of Sons of Anarchy at the time. And, you know, because what people don't realize if they haven't seen Sons is that, yes, it's got all your typical biker tropes. It's got obviously the bikes, 
and you know violence and fist fights and shootouts and you know gang warfare all that stuff is there but there's also an intense you know mother son story and an intense love story and you know it's about family and it's about friendship and it's heartbreaking so that's kind of what i wanted i wanted to say hey what if we had a game where you you expect it to be over the top you expect it to be you know really really broad and you know and to be honest for a while early development it kind of was I, I i think sam mentioned this when he was on we had done a few versions of early scenes where it was it felt more you know more sort of tongue-in-cheek and it was like a tango and cash kind of vibe between deacon and boozers or you know busting mm -hmm. each other's balls and stuff um but you know i moved pretty quickly away from that so the further we got into development it sort of solidified into what it is now which is like you know i really wanted to have i was super inspired by red dead redemption the first one and oh, yeah. loved loved that scene where you're where you're crossing the rio and then that that far away song kicks in and i was like man to me that is the most um amazing moment i've ever had in a video game and i kind of wanted to recreate that in days gone so i so i kind of put three of them in so I mean, yeah I've, that's that's kind of where it started it started as a horde game and became kind of a heartfelt adventure game as you're following this poor dude's life um you know and not just trying to survive but you know trying to find a meaning to live i think was a catchphrase i came up with pretty early yeah i mean i've said before that the emotional resonance of the story is incredible you can tell that that you put a lot of thought into that and the there's a strong emotional core to the story that takes it beyond just a biker fighting zombies kind of game yes i steered away from biker tropes pretty early as well because you notice that the 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 interface for example we had an early version that was all about the bikers and it had you know tattoos and all that stuff and then we hired this guy who brought a really clean aesthetic to it um uh, Shay and he did a you know what I think is a very non-biker look and feel which is which was perfect for me because I wanted to avoid you know the things you would expect to find in a game about bikers surviving in a in a freaker apocalypse and so everything about that part of Deacon's life I sort of I didn't get rid of it but I definitely toned it down I mean I kept it for one of the storylines certainly with with Carlos and Jesse Mm -hmm. You know, and you get a little more information. And there was a lot of material that ended up getting cut just for scope. So, for example, the character Jack, who was uh, Deacon's mentor and brought him into the club, he, you know, he was actually part of the game for a while. And then it just got to be too much backstory and, you know, not enough happening in the Oregon apocalypse. Interesting. I was going to ask if um, there was anything that got cut along the way. Wasn't it originally planned as a trilogy? Yeah, so I haven't spent a lot of time talking about that. So, yeah, so since we're talking about big ideas, it's like uh, I never really pitched this to anyone because I didn't want them to think I was crazy because we were having a hard enough time making one game. So, but I always envisioned the game from the beginning to be a trilogy because I've always worked, if you know anything about my, my, my gaming history, uh, I've always worked with sequels. I've always like Siphon Filter had what six sequels or something mm -hmm. by the time we were done. And then you know we did when we did uh, Resistance Retribution. That was kind of a sequel to the first Resistance game. I really like that kind of continuity between characters and um, and story. And so I in my head, and this is just purely me now, right? So I don't work for Sony or anything. But in my head, I was thinking this is the first part of a trilogy. What I really wanted to do 
was something that I haven't seen done in games before. And that's that you're not only evolving the characters and story over the course of the three games, you're evolving the core mechanic. And so for Days Gone, it was going to be, my analogy was uh, The Walking Dead. It's just pure mindless zombies. And they're running around like crazy. You know, they're killing everything in sight. They've destroyed the world. And, you know, you've got, you've got to learn how to fight them and take them out. But then what would happen in the sequel if the zombies got smarter, right? Because mm. I, hinted, I hinted this all throughout Days Gone. They're evolving. They're re evolving quickly. And, you know, if you, if you follow the Nero missions mm -hmm. where you have the different neuroscientists, you know, sort of verbalizing out loud, some of them are actually smarter now, right? Some of them still wear their jewelry and some of them are, you know, hanging out where they used to live and that kind of thing. So, you know, they, you know, sort of theorizing about vestigial memory and intelligence. Well, what would happen if they, you know, I had a scene in mind for the sequel where Deacon's out on a mission. And yes, the sequel would be 100% about Deacon and Sarah again. I know you guys have speculated a lot that you want it to be about Lisa, but no. <laughs> Lisa's a great character, but she's not the core of the story. The core of the story is Deacon and Sarah. Okay. And, and, so, and so he's out on a mission, and then suddenly it, the, the freakers are armed. They have weapons. They have clubs and spears, and they have makeshift armor and shields on. So, so the second game, the first game is, is The Walking Dead. The second game is Planet of the Apes because you're dealing with a lot of suddenly very smart enemies and they still want to kill you. And, but you know, you've got to deal with the fact that, you know, they're having kids and they have small villages of their own and they're just mortal enemies of, of human beings. Interesting. Yeah. And in this, at the same time, you're dealing with, obviously you're going to be dealing with O'Brien, right? Because he's, mm -hmm. he's a, he's an evolved freaker as well. So, you know, I won't go into too many my ideas for like how that would have all turned out. But bottom line is, you're still fighting freakers, and you're still fighting. Only this time, it's gloves off. You can fight Nero because you have to. So Nero becomes kind of, you know, a high tech enemy versus the low tech freakers that you're fighting in the sequel. Um, and then the third, the third game would have been full on evolutionary evolution blown up. So you've got mostly it's dealing with Nero because now Nero is kind of like they are, in fact, uh, for all intents and purposes, they're aliens, right? So the show becomes, the game becomes more like something like War of the Worlds or Falling Skies because mm -hmm. you're, you're evolving the mechanic of the game in interesting ways while trying to keep the aesthetic that was established in the first game. That would have been my goal, is to try to like build it and expand it in really interesting ways. That would have been so fucking cool. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I'll give you I'll give you a couple of other uh, tidbits. One is Sarah's pregnant, and so that ups the stakes for Deacon. And it's and it's worse than you think because it's not only how do you survive in a, with a pregnancy in a world like this, but also don't forget she's been doing this research. Is it possible the baby's infected? And what does that mean? Oh my god! That yeah. <laughs> And then I had, and then I had, I had one more scene I'll tell you about because after I left Sony, I had a few weeks, you know, where I was basically sort of shell shocked to be honest, because yeah. I'd been at Sony for twenty years, and you know, I'm a workaholic, so I work all the time, and suddenly I had nothing to work on except, you know, I, I ended up publishing a book and and doing some other things, and this is before I started working on Asheville, but for a few weeks there, all I could do was just write down my ideas for what I would have done with the scene mm -hmm. because I just had them in my head, I just wanted them down so that you know, for my own pleasure, 
I would yeah. know where the story was going to go. And so I always like to, again, I like to have these little callbacks, like Lisa would have been an important part of the second story. Um, Ricky and Addie being together, you know, that would have become a thing. They, you know, Deacon would have moved and Boozer would have moved the entire Lost Lake camp to Iron Butte because it's just the facility there. It has food, it's got electricity, it's much safer. It's got an electric fence around it. So they basically just moved the whole Lost Lake camp there. Mm -hmm. That's when things go bad because suddenly they're under attack by armed freakers and Nero and, you know, and then things are happening with Sarah where she has to um, continue her research. Deacon promised her that he was going to help her with that. And in order to do that, they have to move west. So the whole second game would not have taken place in the same place, but it would have been in Western Oregon, which I don't know if you know anything about that, but that's where I grew up. So I was really, yeah, so I was really looking forward to exploring the Rogue Valley, which has some incredible lands landscape features. It's got the Willamette Valley, which has got the I-5 corridor and what a disaster area that would have been. And then <laughs> yeah. of course, and then of course the, uh, the Oregon coast. So yeah, there would have been a lot of really, really, and you know, in bigger urban centers, right? So, you know, we had a couple of urban centers, but they weren't very big, mm -hmm. but I could imagine, you know, being, you know, what the outskirts of Portland might look like or, or uh, even Eugene. I mean, that, that, that would have been really cool. Yeah. Do you think any of these ideas will survive in some form in, you know, future projects that you're working on? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that because not these specific ideas, but I learned so much writing Days Gone because, you know, when we started that game, none of us had made, well, maybe there was a couple of people on the team that had done open world, but certainly Jeff and I didn't. And, you know, we were just kind of making it up as we went along. And all I could do was base the writing on, you know, other open world games I had played. And so, you know, I learned about, well, I learned the hard way because I wasn't entirely successful at it. Like pacing, I think, was the biggest issue that I probably would have changed if I had it to do over again. And something that, you know, now for Ashfall, I know exactly how that works. So I work in a three-act structure in Act 1, it's just supposed to set up, you know, get you to the catalyst and get you propelled into the main story. And we didn't realize how long Act One was in the first playthrough of Days Gone until Jeff was the first person to beat the game, right? It's still really rough, a lot of pieces missing, but it was fully playable for the first time. And I think the, uh, I think Act One took something like 22 hours, which is ridiculous, right? So it's like the, cur the current version I think that we shipped with was down to six if you skipped a bunch of open world stuff. Um, but anyway, so learning the pacing of the game and how do you create enough story and keep these beats moving along, you know, that was all valuable information that I would have taken right into the sequel and that I'm bringing into Ashfall. The other big one is just, you know, we talked a little bit about Deacon's storyline, but for an open world game, and I feel pretty strongly about this, you need more than one storyline, you know, and that's why it's it, it may seem a little convoluted at first, unless you really play the game and pay attention, but you're you're following the Deacon and Boozer storyline, which is, hey, is Boozer gonna live or die, right? He has this horrible act of violence done to him. He's gonna lose the arm, he might die. He's gotta get antibiotics, that whole storyline. And then his, you know, sort of mental health as you're, as you're playing through the game. That's one storyline, and I bounce between that to what is arguably the most important storyline, which is, you know, Deacon looking for his wife. And that all involves the O'Brien missions, right? So you're trying to do favors for Nero, so they'll so Brian will give you information about about Sarah, and so that 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 takes you all the way through the end of the game, uh, and then Act 
Act Two ends with the Carlos storyline. So you know Deacon and Boozer's history with the club. You know they discover their their history with with Jesse's involved, and you know and that and that becomes part of the storyline of Deacon and Iron Mike, which is evidently before the game started. Deacon was kind of an asshole selling people to Tucker, for example, people like like Lisa. You know, and then it, it was a you know, it was like the Lisa storyline that kind of I think changed Deacon in an important way. He began, you know, it's like, hey, she reminds me of my wife's sister. What am I doing? Why am I, what am, why am I dealing with Tucker? And so that became, anyway, these are all different storylines that all have beats that kind of interweave and intersect. And that kind of storytelling is really only possible in a large open world game where the player has the freedom to move back and forth between them and, you know, go to different locales to pick up this story thread. Um, became a problem for some of our early focus testers because it is a lot to follow right so for asphalt i've kind of figured out some ways to mitigate that but in days gone we came up with this you know sort of a netflix screen that allows you to track all the stories it's like hey here's here's lisa when's the last time i saw her right or you know i, I can't remember all the titles i gave the storylines but they all have um they, they all have threads that you can follow and, and we had to create this interface screen that i stole the idea from netflix <laughs> in order to keep, help the player keep track of it all so yeah so for asphalt no specific ideas from days gone but the kinds of things that i think make an open world game fun and exciting uh you mentioned in the past that deacon's story about his dad telling him to drown a rat's nest came from a personal experience in your own life were there any other personal experiences that you included in the story yeah so my my writing tends to be very autobiographical the scene with the hose and the rats that actually happened that's real um copeland is real it's like i grew up with a guy like that my mom worked for him my mom was the secretary of one of the country's first second amendment groups so you know you you think maga is kind of uh out there politically uh when i grew up in southern oregon and medford no dude it was that times 10 because there, everybody was a gun nut everybody was super ultra conservative i mean the kind of conservatives that are like ammon bundy you know who go to war against the federal government mm. those kinds of conservatives right so a lot of the speeches that copeland gives you i've heard that rhetoric my entire life or at least when i was growing up in medford so that kind of stuff was very common um yeah i'm just you know just the uh what one of the reasons why you know we have talked about this before is the setting right so why set this in in the high desert of oregon and it's because you know i just again i'm, I'm looking for you know things that i know personally so I, I grew up here came out this way a lot of times spent a lot of time hiking and adventuring in you know these mountains and woods when i was a kid so a lot of that kind of thing comes from and i'm not the only one there's you know a bunch of the dudes have been in studio and gals uh have direct experience with some of the kinds of places you see in the game so that certainly played a huge part of it um i'm sure there's a bunch of examples that i can't think of right off the top of my head but <laughs> but to answer your question yes there were a lot talking about copeland um one of the things that brings the world to life are the different personalities of the various camp leaders it seems like they are meticulously crafted to play off each other and explore different political structures or ideologies. What was the world building process like and how much fun did you have creating such a detailed and rich world? 
Well, yeah, it was very, very deliberate. So the way the way the story came about is I work from a detailed outline. And, you know, I use a variety of sort of, you know, Hollywood structure that you know, kind of can guide like important story beats. So when I when I wrote the initial story, I knew important I called it the golden path. So it's the backbone of when you're playing the main storyline missions. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this outline that basically started with Deacon and Sarah and Boozer in farewell as it's blowing up and then ends with them, you know, riding away from from Wizard Island. And every single important beat in the game was part of that outline, including all the camps he goes to, because mm. that's an important part of the experience. So and one of the things that um, I, I think could really use more exploration for game developers to discuss like how do you craft narrative and and games in general not just open world games but the keys are having interesting places to wander around it to look and see you know just basically it's like theme park design you're hey i got to think about not just the characters that are going to be there but what makes this space interesting right like why you know how how is copeland's camp going to be different than tucker's camp and iron mike's or or the militia and so that goes into it and then it's got to be in different parts of the world right so you know i gotta have a hub in this part of the world and it's got to be a place where you know deacon's got to go and buy and sell stuff obviously but he's got to meet new characters there and they're going to develop new missions so it's the geography of it it's the like you mentioned the politics of it i had a spreadsheet where i had listed out all the camps in the game and there was an entire camp that got cut by the way i think oh uh, really what yeah so 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 in act three act three used to be about twice as big as it is now and it was by a dude by the time we got there we just realized oh this is just too much it's too much <laughs> so when you had um james McCune on and he was talking about yeah there was this like football player who was running a camp but there was a whole much bigger drug storyline mm. and there was a whole camp south of crater lake kind of on the opposite at the very very south end of the map um and a whole new region down there to explore because man that's a gorgeous part of oregon and there's a lot of farmland down there and so again it was an interesting biome that was different than what we had in other parts of the game but just too much just too much so the, the spreadsheet though showed where each of these camps were politically right so obviously tucker's camp is kind of an autocracy and you know it's 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 run you know it's kind of a the fact that she was a you know a prison warden or a prison matron gives that whole thing kind of a, a a vibe to it that is um very unique right and copeland mm -hmm. we've talked about he's the he's you know he's the i think the the freedom first um don't tread on me dude and iron mike i think is the one who's probably the most normal but you know i think as it turns out and i've said this before it's like you know I, the conflict between schizo and iron mike schizo's not wrong iron mike is kind of a fool and you know it's like i think that there's a kind of expediency that would need to happen to help that camp survive and making deals with you know with the rippers probably isn't it mm -hmm. but having, having said that he's that's the camp i would live in right it's like right. you know he believes in democracy and justice and you know he's not an autocrat you're free to leave if you want to all that yeah and then you know and then the militia of course it's just kind of not straight up military and i hope every i wish more people had picked up on that because i actually think the colonel's kind of a good guy too if you really look at what his goals are and you know what he wants i mean he turns out to be kind of a, of a bastard 
but some of those early speeches he gives to the new recruits where he's like, you know, he's very inclusive, right? He is. Yeah. He's like, everyone is welcome. And, and he talks a lot about, you know, preserving the best parts of civilization, you know, education, information, science, you know, he is very progressive. Yes, exactly. Then it takes a very dark turn. He does. Yes. Um, but you know, each one of those camps did have therefore its own view on how to save the world, um, what it was going to take to survive. And, you know, they, I think they made, they, they, con they contrasted with each other fairly well. Let's talk about character creation at the beginning of the game. Deacon is a damaged man on the verge of losing his humanity. He's trading with a slave camp. He's kills people for money. What led to the decision to have such a dark character so sorely in need of redemption as our main character oh well I'll, I'll tell you this he used to be a lot darker than he is now um i ended up having to go back and we ended up editing you know all of the act one uh cutscenes and some storylines because you know it was uh hinted at that lisa was sold into slavery right but there were originally there were much darker undertones to that like she actually when she re reunites with deacon actually just goes, goes into a i think a much stronger sort of speech about look at what you did to me you know kind of thing mm. and and you know and again dude i think this is a hard lesson i learned that is applicable only to long games with you know with you know 20 30 50 hour narratives if you're if you're writing a movie and i, and I know you're a screenwriter so you you must know this you can have an unlikable character mm -hmm. right because yeah. in a movie, you got to get from like I think one of my favorite movies from the last few years is Tom Cruise in The Edge of Tomorrow, and yeah. he's such an unlikable character at the start of that movie. He's arrogant, he's lazy, he's a coward. Um, you know, he does everything his and it, then he's forced into this battlefield and he's forced to live his assholeness over and over and over again until it's kind of beaten out of him. So in a two-hour movie, you can do that. You can't do that in a in a sixty-hour game. Because players don't want to spend eight hours with Deacon if he's an asshole. Right. And I got, dude, the feedback I got from that was just kind of overwhelming. And man, early focus test, people just hated Deacon. It was, he was just like, he was insufferable. Wow. And so all that had to all that had to be toned down. So yes, what I really wanted, and I do feel strongly about this, you want a character, you know, who's got at least the way I write characters for the for the main character, they gotta have some kind of an Right, you got to start them somewhere, and they're broken in some way, and then over the course of the story, they figure out how to fix it, and you know maybe use that weakness as a strength, and you know all that typical standard stuff. Mm -hmm. But for for a sixty-hour game, you just got to be careful about how you know. There's other ways to make your character, you know. And here's the other thing: you can't make him weak either, right? Because it's an action game, so right. You don't want, so you don't want the player running around, you know, is, is, you know, all wimpy for, for four or five hours either. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but yeah, I felt he had to be, he has this history and there were, I used to, I haven't for a couple of years, but I used to watch the YouTube videos of people playing and reacting to the game. And man, it's like every time I always look forward to the scenes where they finally get to, you know, the car, big Carlos reveal and you learn really what kind of a dick, Boozer and Deacon were back in the day, right? right? <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, they held they held a dude down while he, while his tats were burned off. There's really kind of no excuse for that, and that was that was a scene I kind of had to fight to keep because it's like, yeah, I know, I get it, 
But that's real evidence that the deacon we see now is not who he was, you know, when he was back and a full-blown member of the M of the MC. Yeah. Yeah, he's a changed man. I had a quick question for you about Carlos. What was it that he did that warranted getting the tats burned off? Because there's a few different conflicting sources on the internet and the art book is kind of vague. What is the actual, like, didn't he, did he kill someone in the MC or something like that? Well, you know, to be honest, um, the, uh, I didn't have a lot of help writing the game, but I had a lot of help writing some of the, some of the backstory and side story stuff. So a writer named Ann Tool, who's done, a, I think she just won a, a WGA award has gone on to do some great things with like horizon. She wrote all that Carlos backstory for the game. And I definitely remember, um, I definitely remember that it was related to drugs. It, he did murder somebody. He murdered somebody in the MC and, but it was worse than that. He almost got the entire MC arrested because of the way he was, the way he was dealing drugs on the side and without permission. Ah. So he went against the bylaws. He threatened the entire club. Um, he got a person killed, you know, just overall, I wouldn't in any way see he had it coming, but you know, the way, the way bikers work. Yeah. He could have been, he could have been murdered. So. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Boozer. Boozer's one of um, a lot of players' favorite characters. He There's a lot of love for Boozman. What went into creating him as a character to sort of play off of Deacon and Deacon's arc? Let me get to that in a second, because I have one more, one more uh, just a little uh, bit of trivia for you. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I remember somewhere on, somewhere on your podcast, you, someone was discussing where the name Carlos came from. And again, that was all from, from Anne. It's because once Jesse was kicked out of the club, he went on this you know hallucinogenic sort of tour and lost his mind and uh, dove into the books of Carlos Castaneda. And that's where he started getting these ideas about becoming a messiah figure and leading people to safety. And, you know, and then when the freaker outbreak happened, you know, that just sort of confirmed in his mind. And again, I don't think much of this made it into the game. Maybe it's in the in backstory doc somewhere. But that was the that was the backstory that Anne wrote for him. Oh, cool. Another writing tool I had was this wheel that I built. And the wheel has Deacon in the center. And every aspect of his personality is reflected in some other important character. I think there's 20 characters in the game that have significant screen time. And every one of them is an aspect of who Deacon is. And you know, I'm not saying that's the only way to write a character or, or the best way even, it's probably not, but that's how I do it. Because I really want, in order for there to be really good tension, I want there to be um, important elements of everybody around him that either reflects or challenges some part of his own personality. And so Boozer obviously is, you know, very early on, they have what they have in common is their brotherhood, their friendship. They, you know, they're all each other has. And so, you know, that family, I guess, and brotherhood and the brotherhood of the, one of the things that I find most interesting about bike culture is they all feel that way and it's very real. And so they will die for their brothers, no matter what, it's almost like, you know, people who survived, um, the military together they have this closeness built in mm -hmm. um but that gets, but that gets challenged right because boozer also has that sort of macho biker thing going on you know like the scene where 
and this was a scene that came from Jeff Ross, by the way. I think it was uh, his best contribution to the story is the scene where um, they just had to, you know, put down the dog and, mm. and they're, you know, and they just, you know, Boozer went on a rampage, killed a bunch of, a bunch of uh, rippers. And, you know, he, at that point, Boozer's just kind of fed up with Deacon moping around because <laughs> Boozer's convinced Sarah's gone. And he's just, you know, basically just tells, because Deacon just got the bad news from O'Brien that, no, Sarah's gone. And Boozer's like, uh, dude, she's been gone for two years. What the fuck? And so, you know, they, he just kind of beats the crap out of him. And that's what, that's the, that kind of biker thing. That's the minus side of it, right? The plus side of it is your brother's forever. But the minus side of it is I will kick your ass if I think you're doing something dumb. Yeah, I'll call you out on your shit. Exactly. So that's where Boozer kind of came from. And, you know, I think uh, I love that character. It turns out he's really a popular character, um, which kind of surprised me. But, you know, nothing nothing will surprise me anymore. <laughs> and then, of course, there's Sarah, who I've described before as perhaps the video game industry's strongest female character. Can you talk a little bit about what went into creating her? Yeah, she, you know, in a, in a weird way, she kind of created herself because one of the things as a writer that I try to do is go against expectations, you know, try to surprise people, try to, you know, if you if you think you know what's going to happen, try to find a way to subvert that in some way. And, you know, definitely with, um, with Sarah, I think that, you know, she... Number one, she plays an important role in the plot, right? So if I had that to do over again, I might have made that less sort of clumsy. But, you know, I you know, I thought making her a scientist and a botanist would throw people off the track enough that she couldn't have had anything to do with the with the virus. But people figured that out pretty quickly. Um, but still wanting to have a smart character, I guess is what I would say. Because, you know, again, Deacon, if you, you the, tr the trope and the stereotype is you think of bikers and you think they're dumb. You know, they're just big blue collar brutes that have, you know, no college education and whatever. But I think Deacon makes it pretty clear that he may not have a college education, but he's a pretty smart dude, mm -hmm. you know, and he's a smart ass and he's able to challenge her. And but at the same time, Sarah's very intelligent, does have all these degrees and, you know, has been working as a scientist for a long time. But, you know, sometimes things kind of go right over her head and, you know, she doesn't have, you know, the same sense of humor that Deacon does. So right. I think she ref what she reflects in Deacon, I think, is a way to challenge his intellect and a way to, you know, challenge pretty much everything about him and still, you know, kind of come in a package that is appealing to him. Right. So I had, you know, so that's why, you know, Sarah has tattoos and she's got she's not afraid. And, you know, she she's more than just what the plot needs her to be. Which I think is which I think is really important if you want to develop a character for any medium, let alone just games. They've got to have their own life and they've got to have their own goals, you know. And then you learn by the by the time you get to the end of the game, you learn obviously that she's got some pretty big secrets of her own that explain a lot of her distance and behavior, even in, in the flashbacks. I don't know if people have picked up on it, but you know, like the scene where they're proposing, and you know, she has to take that call and run off. Mm -hmm. That was that was the start of the zombie apocalypse, and you know it's like from that point on, um, you know I think even if Deacon hadn't put her on that chopper, there would have been huge problems between them because you know she felt so guilty and responsible for everything. Uh, Timeline-wise, 
question for you. When she gets that call, when you have the proposal scene, you said that's the beginning of the zombie apocalypse. Is that, like, how close in time is that to when you have um, David Gorman, the the intern who stole a sample of the virus and leaked it and caused the outbreak? Are those two things happening kind of at the same time, or is there time in between them? Dude, that is a really good question. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have an answer. So this is a trick. This is a trick I learned from Amy Hennig when I was writing Uncharted Golden Abyss, because I would pepper her with these kinds of questions, right? Because when I was working on the script for that, and I, you know, I didn't work really closely with Amy, but closely enough where I could, you know, talk to her once a week. And I was trying to find in the early days, trying to find a hook for a story, right? Because we knew we had to kind of do a, a prequel because Naughty Dog didn't want to sort of you know, taking up any story beats that they might want to use later for, for later stories. So I knew what I was working with, but I would ask these questions about, <laughs> about Drake's life. And she didn't know the answers because she's like, and this is the tip she gave me. She's like, as a writer, don't write anything down until you have to. Don't put down a time or a date or, you know, a relationship until you need it because otherwise you're locked in from that point on. So I never did figure out the timeline between Gorman and you know when all that stuff went down versus you know when do these three people find themselves in you know farewell with the with the world burning around them i never wrote that timeline down because i didn't need it now if yeah. i were ever going to do any more work in that because i am doing that believe me in much more detail in asphalt because i just i think it saves a bunch of time later on and make sure and it makes sure that i have internal consistency so for days gone i think it worked out pretty well not knowing all of that um, a lot, and here's the, another answer is that if you if you've picked up all of the intel that's in the game that's available and you get mm -hmm. these little recordings by, you know, people that were out in the field, there, there's a few storylines in there, too, that pick up some of those details like you learn, you know, when did when did the, you know, the death strings start, first start running or when did they start putting in the mass graves and you know, if you if somebody wanted to, because I, I don't have time to do it, but somebody could piece together a timeline of the entire days gone story and it would and it would stretch back to yeah to when deacon and sarah started dating yeah do you have any story written or, or did you have any story in mind for the interim between sarah getting on the chopper and her meeting back up with deacon like any sarah specific story yeah i think most of that made it into the game i'm pretty sure it did right so the broad outline is that you know she's supposed to go to this one camp but that got diverted and that's why, you know, Deacon thinks that she's gone is because he gets to that camp and it's just, you know, it's just a massacre. Mm -hmm. So then she ends up out in the salt flats uh, east of Crater Lake and Nero had a big camp out there. And another example of an area of the game that got cut, by the way, because at one point in the plan, you were supposed to be able to go all the way out there and explore that camp, which had also been overrun and get more clues. But again, it was just, you know, scope wise, it was just too much. But yeah, that's, so she spends time out there and then... She's part of the group that gets evacuated to uh, the Highway 97 corridor, and then those freaks come in, and at that point she gets swept up with the with the militia, and then right. because of her because of her expertise, that's the way the colonel works, right? It's like if you've got something you can contribute, then I'll put you to work, right? And that's that's when she saw her chance to start, you know, working on a plan to find a cure. Yeah. A lot of people don't get the nuance, the the depth and the subtext of the reunion between Deacon and Sarah. Uh, she doesn't seem grateful as a common complaint, or she should have swooned into his arms, and so on and so on. What do you have to say about that? 
Yeah, I, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One is, it's exactly written and directed as I intended. I didn't have to cut anything with that. I thought that Courtney and Sam did an amazing job with the performances because it's a, it's a, and also, by the way, the tech team don't get enough credit for, um, you know, the motion capture team and the facial capture team and the audio and the music. It, dude, to pull that scene off at all, it, because there's a lot of nuance going on in their faces. Um, is, mm -hmm. is is tough to do if you're not an actor, you know, with a camera pointed at you. So to do it in 3D is kind of amazing. So anyway, work is intended. And to be honest, I was, you know, again, it starts from a place of not wanting to do what people expect. Of course you want her to swoon into his arms. But if that happens, then you've already predicted what it was going to happen. And to me, there's no entertainment in that. The entertainment comes in being surprised and being frustrated and having, you know, being challenged. It's like, I wanted players to get to that scene and expect the tearful reunion. And when they didn't get it, I think uh, that was what I would, that, that was my intent. <laughs> it's that I wanted to have them feel something very different than what they were expecting. Yeah. Well, and boy, I, and boy, that worked. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, so I, dude, if I, if I had to do her again, you know what I would have done? Because the, the problem was again, because if, if you look at the, the problems with, storytelling in video games the cutscene cannot last forever right some of my cutscenes as a rule just so you know i tried to keep my cutscenes to a, a minute each which is basically one page of script and some go some go like a page and a half um if it goes longer than that it's like i feel like you know it's a it's a game it's not a movie so you want enough story there and enough you know stuff that can't be done well in gameplay at least in my opinion and but you want to keep it short and sweet so all my cutscenes are like you know very very short except the long ones right so this is actually a pretty long cutscene as it is um and you've just gotten through with a long walk and talk with the colonel right so by this point mm. players players who aren't you know that much into the narrative are already sort of tapping their you know their toes on the ground going, okay come on let's speed this up so in other words i don't know what else i could have done because in real life what would I, here's what would happen in real life Sarah would have done exactly what she did, which is pretend she didn't know him, and then found a way very quickly to pull them aside and have a heart to heart, like, you know, do that kind of thing where you're patting each other down, like, is this you? Is this real? You know, and just kind of have that, uh, I think a more realistic uh, reunion could have been done, but it would have taken way too much time. So I just chose to not deal with it then and have it play out over the next few missions. I think that was a perfect decision, a uh, perfect answer to, you know, to keep it moving and to keep players involved and, and keep people guessing, keep people wanting to have them be together. Because if you don't, if you deliver on what people want, well, then why keep playing the game? I got what I wanted. Exactly. And I just think it was interesting. I just, for me, it, I entertained myself while I was writing it. And I love the, uh, I love the character of Corey because again, he kind of goes against your expectations. It's like, you know, at first you're maybe wondering, Hey, is, you know, is he having an affair with my wife? She's got, he's got my ring. What the fuck? You know? And then he's, he's like, uh, turns out to be a good guy. Turns out to be one of the mm -hmm. best good guys in the game. And, you know, again, I hope that was all kind of unexpected because I don't, I don't think people, um, we're expecting that that turn from him. 
Right. Well, actually, that was going to be my next question. I, I do have a few story-specific questions that have been long debated among players, and I know people would kill me if I didn't ask the clarification from the man himself. Why, why did Captain Corey have Sarah's ring? Um, I think that was explained in the game, too. Maybe maybe not. No, it's Dude, not in there. It's been I almost, mean, it's been almost can, five years, so... <laughs> you can kind of there's the explanation to that right? jewelry because, is taken off you when you join yeah so so you saw that happen so this is how mm. i explained it i did it visually through the experience it's like you know the the one woman is super upset when her jewelry's being taken you know and so you see that they have you know and then the, the, the you know it's explained why no you got to give up all your jewelry you know all that stuff and so then I imagine, and again, I didn't write this down, but I imagine that's where Curry got it. You know, he's like looking through, you know, they're getting ready to smelt this stuff down. Hey, this is a pretty cool looking ring. Um, I, I think I'll hang on to this one. I think it was just as simple as that. So it's just sort of officer privilege. He's allowed to wear, he's kind of allowed to wear jewelry, even though everyone else is not supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, another story specific question. Was Schizo actually a gangbanger, or was that just what he wanted people to think? Um, that's just what he wanted people to think. Now, I know there was backstory written for this. It might, I thought it was in maybe, I think it kind of got turned into Deacon and Boozer sort of joking about Schizo in mm -hmm. one, it, Deacon was talking about in one of his visits to Sarah's memorial stone. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, think that that had a lot of truth to it. So, I picture I picture Schizo as being, you know, a low-level office dude, an executive maybe, who's working, you know, at farmers insurance or whatever. Um, and then the apocalypse happens, and you know, he sort of transforms himself into a tough guy to, to survive, wow. right? So mm -hmm. it takes on this persona of somebody who's a lot tougher than he really is. Yeah. Why are the characters not at risk of infection, even though the virus was airborne? Are they immune? I don't think I say anywhere that the, that the virus is airborne. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a fact. Okay, that may be an assumption on my part. I know that <laughs> there's the, but it's the thing about David Gorman takes the sample to the expo in uh, Portland, and within yes. a, and then everyone flies home from there and spreads it. That's so right. I, I'm, right. I'm assuming airborne. That's is right. Yes, yes, yes. No, you're absolutely right. So again, this is this is a part of the backstory that that Anne helps me write, and the because she had done a bunch of research into the evolution of viruses, as we're seeing right now. By the way, with COVID, like how many how many uh, deltas are we up to now? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> just sort of just sort of postulating, yeah, that it, it was it was an aerosol um, in its earlier stages, but then it evolved very quickly after the first you know few months into something that could only be transmitted via blood and saliva ah okay so follow-up question is deacon at risk of getting infected if he's like fighting the freaks and you know there's blood and saliva flying around or if he gets bitten or something like that yes yes okay. and i think uh, we could have probably made that more clear but you know when you're when you're when you lose a fight when you're fighting the freakers hand to hand it fades to black and you're dead and the assumption there is you got bit or you were exposed and you know you were going to die a horrible death we made a decision very early on and i'm trying to remember why we made this decision um early on i you know i had written out some scenes where you know you're holding a dude the only one we ended up keeping in the game was the newt right that sarah is mm -hmm. trying to cure so that's and, and even then we're not 
we're not seeing her transform. We're seeing her die. Um, although she doesn't really die. I'll tell you about that. That was a sequel idea I had. But the uh, the we never showed a transformation, not once. You know, and it was originally there was a scene where you were going to watch a dude who came in and got bitten, and then you see him turn. And um, I'm trying to remember why we. I think we ended up cutting it out because it was you know kind of a trope that that you right. know because Walking Dead was a huge show at that time, and they played up that stuff a lot, right? That show was all about these characters getting infected and turn in fact, every plot point for like the first four seasons sort of turned on that. And I think that was one reason I just kind of avoided those storylines. Mm -hmm. So that simple answer is um, yes, Deacon, Deacon will get bitten in, in turn, but we don't show it. We've just fade to black. That makes sense. Um, at what point in the story did O'Brien get infected? So early on we had uh the only time you see O'Brien's face is at the very end and at the very beginning. Right. And and I made the choice, and dude, it was it was a hard choice to make because um, the, I don't know if you got to see uh, uh, Bernardo's face while you were talking to him on his interview, but the mm -hmm. dude is super expressive. I mean, he's a great actor, but he acts with every part of his body. And so O'Brien's facial performance capture throughout that entire game was amazing. The players never got to see. Him. Oh, such a shame! He is such a good oh, actor. He's incredible. The scene, like the scene where, in fact, some of O'Brien's scenes are some of my favorite scenes in the game because the scenes where uh, O'Brien is, you know, reacting to, you know, Deacon pulling a gun on him and saying, you know, you you were at my wife. Why are you alive and not her? And he just mm -hmm. started, and O'Brien just loses it. Right. That's a great scene, or the scene where O'Brien's telling him that his wife died, or you know, right. And then of course the end when when there's the big reveal. O'Brien, uh, just an amazing actor, and, or the or Bernardo, just an amazing actor, and could do a lot of cool things with his face. Another quick, another quick bit of trivia: he also had some really because you know when you're on the set and you've written a you've written a scene and you get it on its feet and you're and you're acting, sometimes little bits of it just don't work out. And man, good actors will help you in that moment solve a story problem. Like for example, when we were shooting the rooftop scene at the very start of the game, and he, you know, he's putting Sarah on that chopper. There's this kind of awkward transition where, you know, Deacon runs over to Boozer and says, hey, brother, we gotta go. He's like, I heard what he said, there's not room for all of us, so I'm gonna stay here. Um, and then Deacon goes back and is saying goodbye to Sarah. And O'Brien comes up and goes, are you coming? And originally, there, there was this kind of awkward moment where Deacon was, you know, going to basically have to say no. And O'Brien, you know, Bernardo is the one who made the, the, you know, the suggestion that what if Sarah says no? Mm. That made yeah. it more powerful and it, it made it a does. better moment, right? Yeah. It made her stronger. It made her not the damsel being put on the, you know, the helicopter to be taken away, but it made her the one making a choice to save both of them. So where did, where did he turn? Uh, again, I don't 100% know. All I know is that when we were shooting those scenes with with um, Bernardo, I just kind of told him, I showed him the, the art because I had that on a spreadsheet as well. And I said, here, you're you're not infected at all and you're 100% infected. So we're going to play you a little bit weirder in each scene as if you're slowly becoming whatever the virus is doing to you. So that by the time you get to those scenes in Act 3 where Deacon is you know, sent into the cave to try to find 
um, the the dude who was you know killed down there, and Brian O'Brien feels really guilty for sending those guys to their deaths. Mm-hmm. So you just feel the tension in O'Brien's voice then, and <laughs> you know, and again, I love one of my favorite lines in the game is you know the one where you know he's sort of he and Deacon are having a fight, and O'Brien just basically tells him he's like you know maybe maybe this time when the chopper comes you'll get on, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's just, yeah. that, 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 I, I laughed when I wrote that line and I laugh every time I hear it. But that's that, a good you know, line. Just like, I think that there's a mo- I think there's, you know, there, you can tell that there's so much tension in O'Brien by that point. And yeah. certainly his hinting way earlier when he's hinting by, you know, when he tells Deacon things like, hey, we may look like we're all one big happy family, but we're not. That's why I'm spying on these guys because I'm cut out of the information. I don't know what's going on. So, you know, even though Brian himself might not have been infected by then, I think it's pretty obvious that the higher ups at Nero and, you know, and a bunch of other subgroups in Nero might have been. Mm. Yeah. Or O'Brien's like worried about, you know, maybe he knows someone is infecting people or or maybe he knows someone who was infected by Nero and he's like, oh, shit, am I next? Is this going to happen to me? Like, what's happening? Yes. And all of that would have been explored way, way further in the, in the, um, in the sequel, at least in, in my version, what would that have been? Because again, I think that's an important relationship is Deacon and O'Brien. I think they've now bonded over, you know, what they've gone through. And I think there was just, you know, I think it's a super interesting relationship. And I think that there's a lot more that could be done with that. Was the Colonel in a relationship with Doc Jimenez? Yeah. You know, what's super interesting about that is um, I think because the text is now out there in the world and everybody's opinion is as valid as mine because i'll tell you this much i did not write that intentionally but when i first heard this theory i said yeah that makes perfect sense (laughs) because the colonel kind of takes a heel turn after doc dies right and there's this and there's this scene that i wrote where yeah the colonel is very solicitous in a way that goes beyond you know, I think, you know, a military leader trying to protect valued assets. Mm. So um, that was not my intent when I wrote it, but I can definitely see why people see that. And if I'm going to be honest, I wish I had intentionally written it that way. And but maybe I maybe I would have overdone it. Right. Because I don't, here's here's the thing. I don't know if you noticed this in the game, but I'm very careful with writing about groups that I'm not a member of. As a writer, you should be able to write gay stories or you know ethnic stories or whatever and i just feel uncomfortable doing that for some reason i'm not you know i'm just not going to do it so another thing that you you probably noticed is that race plays no part in this game Mm -hmm. and that's a deliberate choice because i didn't want to again i've seen this and i saw it in sons of anarchy and i saw it in walking dead you know where i think probably in an apocalypse race would be in a very a very important part of that world in a, in a very negative way. And I just kind of wanted to avoid it. I didn't want to spend hours and hours writing scenes about racists and, you know, all all that kind of ugliness and hatred. I just didn't want to do it. And so the same kind of thing with, um, you know, with people's with people's lives. And I, and I can't remember who I told this last time I was talking about the game, but it's basically I try to write every person as if they're just a person. And, you know, and that's why I literally have zero problem with you know the current trend of having multi-ethnic casting for you know like even like in Hamilton you know you've got Jefferson is played by a black dude I love that because 
yes, the real Jefferson was not that, but hey, you know what? It makes for an interesting story. It makes for an interesting stage play. And so I kind of I kind of write that same way. I'm like, yeah, Jefferson could be whatever. Right. And I just don't I don't focus on that part of it. What part of Days Gone are you the most proud of? Well, are we talking about just the game as a whole or like specific to my contribution or narrow that narrow that down for me? Um the game as a whole or um yeah, however you want to answer it, but like yeah, the the product that was put out, what do you look at and you're like, yeah. That was the, that's I'm the most proud of that part. Yeah, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before, believe it or not. Um, let me see if I can come up with a good answer. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll just I'll just think out loud for a minute. So, you know, when I think back on like the first reveals and some of the, you know, some of the things that we, because don't forget we were a very small team. You know, even when we were near shipping, we were only fifty people internally. And we were making something that most studios had minimum of 150 people. So that we were able to, to make anything is kind of a miracle. So, dude, I just remember when, man, I remember when the um, when the when the world itself kind of came online. And, you know, that that was all the work of concept artists and the technical art team and engineering. But, man, I, I don't think players have any idea because, again, we're talking like, you know, well, it's been five years since the game came out and, you know, probably four years before that. So going on 10 years, the technology, even though we were using Unreal 4, those guys rewrote all of that code to create that world. So the world, I get long-winded way of saying the world itself, yeah. I think is is just spectacular. And then when those guys came in, the environment team came in and, and added, originally we had just sort of a skybox with pulling clouds in it. And then, you know, we would populate a storm if we needed one. And they just came in and built a full-blown weather system where if you could watch the snow clouds come in and it would start snowing and the, the snow would start piling up and then you can watch the clouds go away and the snow melts and turns into water puddles. I mean, little details like that are super, super hard to do. And uh, especially then, and man, just it creates so much ambience. I think probably another thing that I, that I had very little to do with, but except directing it, um, was the music. I think the soundtrack by Nathan Whitehead oh is, my God, yes. is a revelation. Yeah. And, you know, I always feel this way about every game I've worked on, and I've worked with some amazing musical talent like Azam Ali. If you don't know her, look her up. She she helped us with the soundtrack to um, Logan Shadow. Great, great music. And Nathan Whitehead was the best, you know. So we auditioned a few different composers, and I don't remember which piece – um nathan shared with us first but i think it was sarah's theme or maybe it was the days gone theme and you know it's it's what i look for in music i want a melody that that haunts me and i want something you know that's going to make me feel something and the same thing with like the song we commissioned from billy Raphael, um right and uh, and lewis capaldi at the end those are amazing songs and you know if, even if they had nothing to do with days gone but the fact that they wrote it for this experience and it's unique to this experience is 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 pretty amazing. So yeah. yeah, the music, the world, you know, it's like yeah, I, you know, I'm impressed by the acting, dude. Sam Whitwer killed it. Uh, Courtney Draper. We haven't talked about Ricky yet, but man, it's like uh, all the main characters I thought brought it and created unique voices and characters that were believable. And you know, like in Taylor's in Taylor's case, heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, there was a, 
yeah, there was there was a lot that I think uh, that the team especially can be super proud of. Sony Pictures Entertainment is currently developing a movie adaptation of the game. What do you make of that? How do you feel about that? Well, number one, I think it's awesome because, you know, we're hoping to get uh, HBO to adapt uh, Asphalt. So I'm all for any kind of exposure for an IP that I've had anything to do with. Um, even though I'm not going to have anything to do with the movie, if they make it into a movie, then the fans have got to be thrilled because, you know, then there's going to be a chance there might be a sequel someday, right? If it becomes super successful. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's awesome. It's like, um, you know, do I wish, do, do I wish I could make some money from that? That would be nice. But dude, that's seriously, that's just the way games works, right? So it's like, I, one of the things that I would like to see changed in the game industry is, you know, sort of abolishing the work for hire contract system, which I've worked under my entire career. And I get it. I understand why they are that way. Cause co the comics industry was the same way. Um, Hollywood isn't that way though. In Hollywood, if you like, you know, Craig Mazin pitches a show about the last of us and then, you know, they pick it up and turn it into a movie. Craig Mazin, the writer with Neil Druckmann of the last of us is going to get paid for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's going to have, and he's going to have credit. He's going to be assured that he gets, you know, a story by Craig Mazin or whatever. Those are assurances built into the guild that they have, right? The union. And mm -hmm. the game industry doesn't have that, and I, and I wish it did. So that's my, my only caveat is just, you know, on a very selfish level. Um, you know, I wish, I wish that uh, I could participate in that in some way. But having said that, I wish them all the success, man. Like I said, it's like if they can make a Days Gone movie and have it be a hit, uh, that would be pretty incredible. All right, you mentioned Ashfall, and I've been dying to ask you about it. This is the game you're currently developing alongside The Last of Us executive, Michael Mumbauer. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, so, I'm, so I mentioned that once I left Sony, I spent a few weeks sort of being shell-shocked and trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. And I took a year and wrote this hardback book about Carl Barks, who's an artist I've been following you know, for 50 years now. Um, and then I just started, you know, I started playing with Unity and built a couple of very small games. And I started thinking about, because I told you I had been writing down notes about what I would have done in the sequel. And I knew that I didn't own the rights to Days Gone, so I wasn't going to be able to do anything with that. So I, I finished another, I finished my first novel, which is about, a, it's a young adult novel based about uh, a non-Christian view of the afterlife. And that was a lot of fun. And I, that kind of got me going and saying, what would I do if I could write another open world game? What would I, what have I learned from Days Gone? What have I learned since then that I could pour into a new project, new IP? And so I started working on Asphalt and it was a, just an idea I had, right? I, the ideas are kind of, at the, at, like all projects at the, at the beginning, they're kind of all over the place, but Ash coalesced very quickly. So he's a character who's also broken at the beginning for physical reasons. He's born without arms, he's born without an eye, and we're a thousand years in the future, but it's still in the Pacific Northwest, only further north. And he's, you know, the volcanoes are all active, and these mysterious pockets of dark energy have popped up all over the Earth. There's no zombies in this game, but there are lots of mutated animals because there's this inexplicable mystery thing going on that, you know, we'll explore and explain over the course of the game, which I'm also thinking of as a trilogy, by the way. Um, <laughs> But the, but the, yeah, but the character of Ash is just kind of like, hey, he gets these implants from his parents because they're part of this group. There's this huge sort of schism between 
people who blame because the whole world is being sort of destroyed by global warming, which I don't know if you've seen the series on, um, I think it's on Apple TV. I'm not sure. It's called Extrapolation, which is uh, kind yeah, of, a, I haven't seen that one. it's pretty good. And it's basically about global warming in, you know, in our time and how it's, and how it's going to destroy us in the next hundred years. Uh, and that's kind of what I do is I extrapolate that off into the future. Anyway, so getting back to Ash, he's, he's kind of a, it's kind of an origin story for somebody who grows through all of what he has to go through and um, becomes kind of a superhero. So it, it, for me, it was a genre that I hadn't really seen before. It's because again, thinking about gameplay first, it's all about the technology and what he's going to do as he gets these new implants in his arms that, you know, are kind of like Iron Man, but, but way more, um, you know, geared towards gameplay. And then, you know, on a personal level, how he's going to grow and overcome all the challenges that he, that he faces. So, I, you know, that's, I just started writing and writing and writing. And then I was pitching it as I was, cause I was creating a deck, um, a PowerPoint deck as I was working on it. I pitched it to Mike Mumbauer cause he was working on that's no moon at the time. And, you know, he and I had gotten to be pretty close cause he was, you know, sort of encouraged me to, you know, try to find companies that would do a startup or whatever, because he was going through all that himself. And so I would mm -hmm. pitch this to him and he remembered it. And then when he left That's No Moon a year later, he basically said, hey, that asphalt deck, you still have that? I'm like, yeah, I'm still I'm still actually working on it. And I told him everything. I gave him the pitch again, gave him everything I'd done. And that's when we just started talking about doing Lethos and making it into a game. Um, and I really liked his vision for what, you know, how he does IP because it's not just a game, it's a world. And the world, you know, like we just, like I just finished writing the first six issues of a miniseries um, in the, in the Asphalt comic book. And so, right. uh, yeah, so the, the, I just, in fact, uh, he just mailed me the, um, the printed paper copy. So I haven't seen those yet, but, but the artwork is amazing the colors the lettering everything about it is just it's just crazy good and that was just so much fun to you know suddenly I'm, I'm working on comics which you know is very different than writing a novel and very different than writing a game even though they have some things in common it was still it was a way to sort of a, a visually approach the experience uh while you know while not having to put in the expense of creating the game itself so it's just been a blast i've been having so much fun doing that and i'm, and I'm writing the game itself, right? So I'm at that stage where I've got the golden path outline for the entire game. I kind of know what the sequels are going to be. And, you know, I know what Ash's story arc is going to be. Do you have an expected release date? Too soon to say, or? Too, so too soon to say. So what I love about the process that we're, in, that we're in right now is that, you know, I'm working with concept artists and I'm writing. And we have a small tech team and they're working on core, features of the engine but you know i gotta tell you with days gone it was it was it was hard in some ways because you know you're if if you're writing for like a television series and you need new episodes done now and they're in production and filming that's a terrible place to be because then you're constantly under pressure to create and write content while you know the team is waiting for it mm -hmm. so i'm glad i don't have to do that i'm glad i can you know i've got all the time i need to flesh this thing out and get it right and, you know, just write it and, you know, and experiment with it. Like I love that. Like the, the other thing I did is I did a motion comic using unity um, of the first issue. And it was just a lot of fun because again, the motion comic is using the same story and the same material, but it's a very different medium. And so, you know, getting hands-on in the tool 
is is some is a, something I would not be able to do if we were in full production on the game. Yeah. So ETA, yeah, I don't know. Um, as soon as possible. That's <laughs> what I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't wait to find out more about it to eventually play it. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be absolutely awesome. Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, John, I have a couple final questions. Sure. First of all, I'm sure you're aware that Days Gone has an incredibly loyal and passionate fan base. Is there anything you'd like to say to the fans of Days Gone? You know, I think the only thing I really have to say is thank you because, man, it's really, really, really heartening and makes it all worthwhile when you've got players that respond, you know, even, dude, even if they respond negatively, and trust me, I've gotten plenty of that. Um, you know, if you've played the game and you have things to say about it, um, I'm here for you, you know. So people may not know this, but I'm on Twitter and I do have my DMs open. So, um, you know, I love hearing and I've gotten some really, really amazing stories from, you know, because the game came out during the pandemic and they said this got them through it, you know, or people who have gamers who have, you know, suffered personal loss and the game touched them individually. Um, that's that stuff is always amazing as a writer and a creator. So, you know, thanks. Thanks for playing. Thanks for giving it the time and for, you know, making days gone part of your life. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, we all want to say thank you to you for creating such an amazing game that, that like you say, has literally changed people's lives, it's touched people emotionally, and it's just, it's fucking fun to play. I, I'm on my ninth playthrough at the moment. I have over 800 hours in the game, and I just, I can't stop playing it. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't finish listening to your um, interview with Jeff, but just so people know, that's all Jeff, right? The, his His core... You know, to his core, what he is is a gamer. And man, I tell you, some of the early parts of that game were rough and were not fun to play. And you can thank Jeff and his team, um, you know, and the whole team as, as well. But literally, the dude playing the game and making it fun—that's all. That's all Jeff. Now, you two make a good team. You've worked together before in other games. Is there any chance you team up again for something in the future? Yeah, you know, we've actually talked about it. So, you know, I don't want to go into a ton of details, but. Yeah, Jeff and I talked about doing a startup at one point, and we had an IP before I started working on Asphalt um, that I ended up stealing a bunch of ideas from. But anyway, it was a uh, yeah, definitely. I think we do. I think we do uh, work together well because we have worked together since the first Siphon Filter game. So, you know, we brought him in as a level designer way back then, and it didn't you know it didn't take him long to sort of move up the ranks, and then he kind of moved out on his own and was game directing at other places for a while. But I brought him back to work on um, Resistance Retribution, and then he worked on Uncharted Golden Abyss with me, and then obviously Days Gone. So the guy's really good at what he does, and I do think that you need a solid gameplay guy and a solid story guy in order to make an amazing experience, because it could be the best story in the world, but if the game's not fun to play, then you know you don't have a game. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes. Uh, all right, finally. A question I like to ask all my guests. If you found yourself in the world of Days Gone, how would you fare and which camp would you join? Well, you know, given where I'm at now, <laughs> 63 years old, well, 62, but I'm preparing myself for my birthday in a month. Um, Happy uh, birthday. Yeah, right. And so I don't know, you know, this is something else that I don't see talked about a lot uh, that I, I was expecting to get more reaction to is that 
there's a lot of old people in Days Gone. <laughs> there's a <laughs> lot. Of, there really are. There, you know, like Iron Mike and Tucker and the Colonel. Um, man, and you know, it's like I just think that it's an underrepresented uh, group that old people. And by old people, I mean people my age, right? I'm, it's like, I think that there's a lot of stories to be told there, like, you know, from their perspectives and their experience and, you know, and what they can bring to something. So, yeah, I would kind of picture myself being at Iron Mike's camp and, you know, be one of being one of those dudes that you see, you know, barking orders at people out on the farm and, you know, trying to, trying to help things run more smoothly. So that's where I would definitely want to be. And, um, Probably not the type that would have a gun and be out hunting <laughs> on freakers or, you know, would not look forward to fighting in a ripper war. That's kind of right. not me. You'd be kind of more like team leader. I would teach art classes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. I would be that helping would be awesome. Iron Mike, you know, carve, carve his, uh, his, uh, his pinnacle board or whatever it was. <laughs> yes. All right, a couple of things before we wrap up. You can support the Days Gone podcast via buymeacoffee.com slash 8bitterror. You can do a one-time contribution or become a member. There are various levels, each with their own perks and rewards, and membership starts for as little as a dollar a month. You can check out all the details at buymeacoffee.com slash 8bitterror. And I want to give a big shout out to my members, they are Miranda Satin, Basics of Pain, Captain Caffeine, Jay Stabby, Obscured by Ink, Hani Yokoshe, Anton G, Tom Moose, James Guan, Borislav 24-7, Neanderthal Bard, W.D. Henderson, Dogbone, Passionflower Percussion, Zylock DMB, Bex, Mike, Andy, Alexandru, Catherine the Great, Dandy Denny, Colorful Soldiers, C.J. Voorhees, John Wagoner, Nomad416, Marcus Horton, Hack Parachute, Roast Chestnut, Stickman, Daily Lad, Joey Image, Mr. Dutchy Dutch, Headhunter Telesto, Squirrel Jr., Kevin V., Sean Brooks, Joe Schmo, Andy Matthews, and Unleash the Goof. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share so more people can find the show. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, it's been fun. And if you know, if you get more questions and want to have me back on and just do a more sort of quick Q&A with things that fans might want to ask, I'm, I'm totally open to that because my schedule is pretty open right now when I'm not writing. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thanks a lot, Claire. Appreciate it. You can email me your thoughts, comments, opinions, and counter-arguments at daysgonepod at gmail.com. You can also find me moderating the Days Gone subreddit. Thanks for listening. Weaver out.